0: warm sunny spring welcome to this week's wildlife matters podcast with me nigel palmer i'm your host and we have a fantastic show lined up for you today in nature news we're going to be looking at the death of the river Wye and the pollution in our rivers and just what a devastating impact some of the intensive farming is having on our rivers and In future episodes, we're also going to take a look at the sewage pollution that is destroying virtually every river here in the UK. Yeah, it's crazy, but we need to look into that more. In this week's though, Wildlife Matters investigates. We're going to be taking a journey, so pack your bags, pack your flask, get your cuppa ready and uh, join me as we travel around the world and take a look at the hedgehog species all around the world. And on this week's Wildlife Matters main feature, we are asking the question about the RBCT or the randomized badger culling trials and asking why is it still so important here today? And of course, you will get to spend a few moments in nature with mindful moments. And that's all coming up right now on this week's Wildlife Matters podcast. this week's wildlife matters nature news we're going to be taking a look into an issue that's been troubling me for some time and that is the pollution of our rivers here in the uk they are all now in some form of deterioration for quality but one river that's really upset me more than others is the river y and that has just recently had its health status downgraded by natural england as a Wildlife Matters and other charities have accused the government of failing to stop farming pollution, harming the waterways. Natural England, the government's nature watchdog, has updated the status of the river from unfavourable improving to unfavourable declining, meaning its condition is poor and it's getting worse. The new assessment shows that the river, which flows for 155 miles from Mid Wales to the Severn Estuary in England, has experienced declines in key species such as the Atlantic Salmon and the White Clawed Crayfish. Now, we all know that the Y has been in decline for some time now. Perhaps you, like me, can remember the Y as being crystal clear and full of wildlife more recently becoming the color of pea soup and that's thanks to the intensive chicken farming on the catchment area this is because the poultry reed in the area produce large amounts of manure and that manure contains nutrients that include phosphorus much of this is spread on the land where it then leaks out into the waterways and makes the phosphorus enter the river Wildlife Matters is calling for ministers in England and Wales to place an immediate moratorium on any new or extended intensive livestock production units and that includes poultry, cattle and pigs in the Y catchment area. We are also asking for farmers and supermarkets to work with nature charities to put an end to this pollution and for farmers in the area to be helped to diversify into regenerative and sustainable methods of production which will cause less pollution wildlife matters believes that the news that the river Wye is in even worse condition now will come as no surprise to any people that live near it or in fact love it but this new admission represents a shocking failure by the agencies and authorities in wales and england that should be working to protect this once beautiful river. The government's own research shows that the farm pollution is the main cause of the river's decline. And that's why authorities must enforce the law wherever the causes of pollution are clear. And it's time to prevent more intensive chicken, cattle and pig sheds from being licensed before they kill the river wine completely. That has been this week's Wildlife Matters Nature News. welcome back and on this week's wildlife matters investigates we're going to do something a little different and take a look at one of our favorite mammals the hedgehog around the world yeah take a look at all the different species of hedgehog that exist on our planet there are actually five genera of hedgehogs and 16 distinct species that can be found globally in fact they're on every continent except for the Americas and Australia So, from the African deserts to the frigid Russian winters, these small mammals have done wonderfully well to survive for thousands of years. So, let's take a few moments to appreciate these remarkable creatures and consider where they live throughout the world. Join me as we take a journey around hedgehog world. The first species of hedgehog we're going to take a look at is the Somali hedgehog. And that is the, a mysterious creature that inhabits only the outer borders of Somalia. Despite being a subject of study for zoologists and a fascination to animal enthusiasts alike, very little is actually known about this species of hedgehog. What we do know. Is that they are a savanna species meaning they prefer to live in grasslands and other open areas and that is distinctly different to most hedgehog species. They are visually striking though and contrast between their soft white bellies and black and or dark brown legs is a sight to behold. They measure just 4 to 6 inches or 12 to 14 centimeters in overall length and weigh in at just 60 to 65 grams. These little creatures are fast and agile, a key ability to any wild animal, but vital for one who lives in open spaces with limited cover to hide away from their predators. The Somali hedgehog's range is limited to Northern Somalia, where they scurry through the tall grasses beneath the starry sky. They are nocturnal. The Somali hedgehog remains an enigma yet to be solved by human curiosity but its unique qualities suggest a fascinating creature of unknown potential. The second one we're going to take a look at is the Southern African Hedgehog. Now that is up to 8 inches or 20 centimeters in length and has brown spines and fur and a white stripe that runs right across its forehead. Yeah, It is said to be a slow mover, but it can move surprisingly fast when it's threatened. The speeds of up to six to seven kilometers an hour, which is approximately four to five miles an hour, is pretty nippy, I think. Southern African hedgehogs are found throughout the South of Africa, in countries including Angola, Botswana, South Africa, Tanzania, and Zimbabwe. During the day, they rest where they live Or in a hole in the ground. They are nocturnal animals. In the day they will typically stay where they live which is an area that is covered in vegetation or a hole in the ground. When the hedgehog rests it curls up into a ball. A single litter of South African hedgehogs is usually between one and nine pups born after an approximate 35 day gestation period. The young are most likely to appear during the summer months from October through to March. At birth, each baby weighs roughly 10 grams and lacks fur or sight. Their soft spines will drop out after a month and be replaced with permanent quills. The diet of the the Southern African hedgehog is mainly things such as insects, earthworms, and crickets, but the human impact has changed their behavior. They now tend to feed on mostly invertebrates like beetles, grasshoppers, and slugs, as well as frogs, lizards, and pet food that is put out by human owners near their houses. Although large bodies of water are rare in this geographic area, they don't need that much water to survive. Most of their hydration actually comes from the food that they eat. The third species is the North African hedgehog also known as the Algerian hedgehog and it's a species in the family Erysidae found in Algeria, Libya, Malta, Morocco, Spain and Tunisia. Being native to Africa it is assumed that humans introduced the hedgehog to other nations outside of its natural habitat. The hedgehog typically measures between 8 and 10 inches long and it can weigh up to 650 grams. That's much smaller than the European hedgehog, but also larger than other African hedgehog species. It also has a longer snout and legs, making it a faster runner. Its face tends to be lighter in color, often usually it's white, while the legs and head are brown. Not much is known about North African hedgehog's preferred habitat, It's been spotted in Mediterranean conifer and mixed forests in mountainous regions of Spain and northern Africa. But the environment has to be suitable as they cannot survive in desert areas. The gestation period of these hedgehogs is between one month and six weeks. They usually have up to 10 hoglets per litter with two litters each season and that season is between October and March the hoglets are born with no hair and soft spines which are not replaced by the hard stiff spines until approximately four weeks after they're born. Hoglets typically weigh 12 to 20 grams at birth. And Here's an interesting one the next one we're going to look at is the four-toed hedgehog and that is a small hedgehog with an oval body that measures around 8 inches in length and they weigh between 225 and up to a maximum of 600 grams females are usually larger than the males but both sexes have short legs and their tails are only about an inch long they have long noses and pea-sized eyes whilst their large ears and whiskers imply their senses they use most as the name implies this hedgehog has four toes on each back foot not including its hallux, a trait that sets it apart from other hedgehog species. The colouring of the four-toed hedgehog can vary greatly. They generally have brown or grey spines tipped with white or cream. The fur is mottled grey whilst its muzzle and leg fur is brown with white accents underneath the body. Four-toed hedgehogs can be found throughout central Africa extending from Gambia and Senegal in the west to Somalia in the east and even down as far as Mozambique. Although they prefer grassy areas or open woodland habitats to higher altitudes, they have not been found over 6,000 feet above sea level. The four-toed hedgehog is a night-dwelling solitary animal. It typically traverses the ground but when necessary can climb and is also a great swimmer. Its high energy levels allow it to cover a tremendous amount of territory in one night as it hunts for insects, grubs, snails, spiders, plants and even small animals. The four-toed hedgehog has a reputation for its resistance to poisons, being known to consume scorpions and some venomous snakes. The female four-toed hedgehogs are always fertile and do not enter estrus during a certain season. Mating is popular during the rainy season due to the plentiful food supply. Litters contain between 2 and 10 hoglets on average with 4 to 5 being a very typical size. Next one we're going to take a look at then. I hope you're enjoying our little trip around the hedgehog world and uh, finding out a little bit about all the relatives of our native UK and or european hedgehog but the next one we're going to take a look at is the amur hedgehog it's also known by many other names the amur is known as the mancurian or the chinese hedgehog hedgehog and is similar to its european cousin in both size and behavior they're around 12 to 15 inches long and they can weigh anywhere between 700 up to around a thousand grams as an adult these hedgehogs originate from the Amur Oblast and Primorye regions of Russia but have spread to China and other parts of the Korean Peninsula. The Amur Hedgehog has a head and body length of between 160 up to around 290mm, and that's 6 to 11 inches, and they have a very short tail. Their spines are two-toned with some plain white and others having both light or yellowish brown bases and tips with mid to dark brown shades in between. They are solitary creatures that only come together for mating purposes. At night, they will forage for insects, worms, centipedes, snails, mice, frogs and other small animals. During the autumn months, these animals enter a state of torpor until the springtime when they will emerge again from hibernation. A typical litter consists of four to six babies. The southern white-breasted hedgehog is next on Alice. And the southern white-breasted hedgehog is also known as the white-bellied hedgehog or the white-chested hedgehog. It is a species of hedgehog native to parts of Eastern Europe and Southwestern Asia. It is often mistaken for the more well-known European hedgehog due to its similar physical size, features and behaviour. However, it can be discerned from this species by the presence of a white patch on its chest. This makes it very difficult to identify at night though. In contrast to other hedgehogs, the southern white builds its nest out of grasses on the surface. Since the 1990s, ecologists have established that the northern white-breasted hedgehog, formerly known as a subspecies, is in fact a distinct species from the southern white, bringing the total number of known hedgehog species up to 16. So why don't we take a look at the uh, northern-breasted hedgehog now and just see what the differences are. Well, (laughs) first off, it has to be said they are very similar. The European hedgehog and the southern white-breasted hedgehog, which it was previously, as we've said, considered a subspecies of. In fact, there's been very little study of the northern white species so far, and consequently much of our knowledge is of it is based on that of the European hedgehog, to which it is very closely related. The only physical difference between the northern and southern white species is their jawbone structure, making it almost impossible to tell them apart without an x-ray machine and certainly not possible in general out in the wild. Their range is vast, they live in Poland, Austria, Greece and its Adriatic islands like Crete, Corfu and Rhodes. They are also spread across Russia and the Ukraine all the way east to the Ob River in Siberia. Since the 1990s, when the scientists recognized this new genetic and morphological research, they have deemed the Northern White a species in its own entity. And within that, it has five subspecies of its own. Romanicus, Volkaya, Drozdrovski, Nesitoes, and Palliduswith. That's easy for me to say. Now, next, with let's go to something I might be a bit more comfortable on, and that is our well-known European hedgehog. And it's what many people perceive as a hedgehog, and it has featured strongly in our culture, in our literature, and who doesn't love Mrs. Tiggy Winkle, through to Sonic, her hedgehog for the younger generation. They are found in most countries throughout Europe, including Spain, France, Italy, the UK, Ireland and many, many more. They can survive across a wide variety of different habitats and climate conditions, hence their widespread existence. Physically, the European hedgehog is the largest species of hedgehog growing to around 12 to 15 inches and sometimes a bit more in length and weighing in at somewhere between 800 and 1,200 grams for a full-size adult. Their main color is brown black with brown cream fur on their lower body, but they are both blonde and leucistic variants. They are largely maternal and very stoic in nature, with the only aggressiveness occurring between two males, mainly during the breeding season. They are omnivores, primarily eating earthworms and insects, but they will enjoy fruits and berries and have been known to take eggs from ground nesting birds. In the UK, the hedgehog population has declined severely due to habitat and hedgerow loss and systemic pesticide usage in agriculture. It is estimated that there are now less than a million hedgehogs left in the UK today and that's a shocking. ninety. 5% decline over the last few decades. There is work being done, particularly in urban areas, that have seen populations begin to recover in gardens, but the rural population appears to be in near terminal decline, primarily due to the changes in modern farming practices, the systemic use of pesticides removing their main food resources and the removal of hedgerow boundaries to allow for ever larger agricultural machinery, as well as the lack of field boundaries. The hedgehog is fast becoming an urban wild animal in the UK, where its main threat comes from humans in vehicles, and it's estimated that at least 100,000 hedgehogs are killed on the UK roads every year. The next one we're going to take a look at is the long-eared hedgehog and that has a wide range throughout Central Asia and some areas of the Middle East. They use burrows for shelters, either digging their own or finding abandoned ones. One of the interesting features of this species is of course its long ears, which stand out among other hedgehogs. Its head and body length ranges from 120 up to around 270 millimeters whilst its tail measures between 10 and 50 millimetres. The ears of the long-eared hedgehog are longer than any spine found on its body with lengths ranging from 30 all the way up to, yeah, get this, 45 millimetres. They use them to keep cool in their desert environments. These creatures have excellent hearing and a sense of smell that they use to find food and to evade predators. The long-eared hedgehog may be small but it's mighty and adequately equipped to handle the harsh conditions of its habitat the long-eared hedgehog is an insectivore with up to 70 percent of its diet consisting of insects as well as some worms and the occasional slug or snail it breeds only once a year in the summer months from july to september the female will have two to three hoglets after 35 to 42 days of pregnancy. After one week, these newborns already eat solid food. The long-eared hedgehog prefers moderate climates, avoiding both scorching deserts and the chillier mountain ranges. They thrive in areas that get between 1 and 400 millimetres of rain each year. They like to make their homes in burrows they've dug beneath bushes, which typically measure around 45 centimetres long and have just one opening. Sometimes they'll take over abandoned burrows made by other small animals instead. These nocturnal creatures rest during the day under rocks, hollows or under rock piles. The next species we're gonna take a look at is the Indian long-haired hedgehog. Yeah, the, and that has an elongated body and spines embedded in a muscle sheath but it's quite distinct from the long-eared hedgehogs living in the arid regions of Pakistan and northwestern India. They are small for hedgehogs, measuring up to 17 centimeters from head to tail and weighing in between 200 up to a maximum of 500 grams. The Indian long-eared hedgehog has very well-developed senses which help them find food and their potential mates. They'll feed mainly on insects and get most of their water they need from their food supply. They are known for their elaborate mating ritual that involves the male dancing around the female for several days before mating. The dancing is what brings the female into Osterus and then estrogen release stimulates her to lower her spines so that they can then mate. Like many hedgehog species they are nocturnal seasonal breeders males are active from march to august while the females are active from april to august the next one we're going to take a look at is the doranian hedgehog the, so the doranian is a solitary and small species of hedgehog found in the region of trans russia and northern mongolia this area is sometimes referred to as doria hence the name of this hedgehog dorian hedgehogs make their dens in forests and grasslands plains, as well as shrublands. A fully grown adult Dorian hedgehog can reach up to 20 centimetres in length, head to tail, and will weigh somewhere between 600 and 1000 grams. They typically live for up to six years in their natural environment, and they hibernate during winter like other temperate region hedgehogs. After the heavy use of pesticides in the area during the 1960s, the population of the Dorian hedgehog was greatly affected, but thankfully appears now to have recovered since then. In common with most other hedgehogs, they are now moving towards cities as they find more food sources there, better protection from agricultural activities, and an increase in human support in providing sustenance for them. The next one we're going to take a look at is Hugh's Hedgehog. Hugh's Hedgehog, or the Central Chinese Hedgehogs, are native to Mancuria in the middle of China. They thrive in arid, dry areas, but can also be seen in woodlands and grassland places. Hughes Hedgehogs are distinct from the other hedgehogs as they have one longer toe on each front foot, helping them to dig out grubs from their burrows. What's even more fascinating is that huge hedgehogs sometimes feed during the day which is an uncommon for any other species of hedgehogs although they are still a nocturnal animal. The next one we're going to take a look at is the desert hedgehog and that is one of the smallest of the hedgehog species. It measures between five and a half up to around 11 inches in length and typically weighs in at 280 to up to about 500 grams. The desert hedgehog can be identified by their long banded spines which when threatened tense up causing the quills to stick out in all directions. Mating season for desert hedgehogs generally begins in March after they have come out of hibernation. The female will give birth to around six young either in a burrow or hidden nest after a gestation period of 30 to 40 days. When born, the spines are located just under the skin to prevent any damage to the mother during delivery. After about 21 days, the young's eyes will open and the young desert hedgehog will be weaned some 40 days later. Desert hedgehogs are native to various locations in and around Northern Africa and Southwest Asia including countries such as Bahrain, Algeria, Chad, Egypt, Iran, Iraq, Israel, Jordan, Kuwait, Libya, Mali, Morocco, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, Tunisia, the United Arab Emirates and the Yemen. Additionally, it has also been reported that these animals may reside in Ethiopia. Next species we're going to take a look at is Brant's Hedgehog and that is an inhabitant of the Middle East and Central Asia, first identified by Johann Friedrich von Brandt. This species of desert hedgehog is around 600 to 1,000 grams in weight and around 25 centimeters in length, with large ears like a long-eared hedgehog, but with lighter spines. They are also much quicker runners than their cousins. They are nocturnal and usually find shelter in deserts or on mountainsides during the heat of the day. And if they get too hot, they will dig dens and submerge beneath the sand. When the temperature drops too low, they will hibernate. A unique research study on Brandt's physiology revealed its skin composition has three layers, the epidermis, dermis and hypodermis, as opposed to most other hedgehogs, which only have two. France hedgehog has four subspecies, the Hypomelas blanfordi, Hypomelas hypermelis, Hypermilus niger and the Hypermilus seniculus. The Indian hedgehog is a species of short-tailed hedgehog native to India and Pakistan. It lives in sandy areas as well as other habitats. Indian hedgehogs have a mask-like face similar to that of a raccoon with a dark upper region that lightens at its crown. Adult males typically weigh around 425 grams, whilst adult females are noticeably smaller at around 325 grams, making both sexes smaller than the long-eared hedgehog, but they are more agile on their feet and have a faster reaction time and are capable of running at high speed for sustained and continuous periods. Their bodies are generally brown and stocky, boasting a short head with a pointed nose and very small eyes, whilst their ears are relatively large. They have five toes on each foot that are topped off with small but strong claws, all of which blend into a grey-brown colour. The Indian hedgehog has a very broad diet, eating insects, frogs, toads, birds, snakes and even scorpions. They don't hibernate. But when the temperature drops and the food becomes scarce, they lower their metabolic rate and go into a state of torpor. As a protection from predators, the upper side of their body is covered in prickly spines that help them roll into a ball in times of danger. They are excellent diggers and make themselves burrows that are around 45 centimeters deep that they use for hiding and sleeping purposes. They are always on the lookout for any abandoned burrows that may be open for occupation. Indian hedgehogs are one of the species that are known to follow the practice of self-anointing which involves spreading saliva on their spines and fur after experiencing something unfamiliar. This behavior can arise in both sexes and at any age or time of year. Male and female Indian hedgehogs only come together to mate and the female takes the responsibility for care and to raise their family of up to three hoglets alone. It is common within hedgehog species that the male plays no part in the upbringing of the family. We hope that you have enjoyed seeing the many and varied species of hedgehogs that live in such a diverse range of habitats from the arid deserts through the temperate climate of Europe and Asia to the chill of the Baltic regions of Russia and China. We have traveled around the world to see these animals, observing them as they dug their dens, curled up into protective balls against predators and ran freely through fields. If you feel motivated to help protect hedgehogs in your area, you will find many local community groups doing some amazing work to protect their own local hedgehogs. And Wildlife Matters would recommend if you're in the UK to check out these following websites. The Amazing Grace Project website is www.grace the one word, that is grace the You can also check out Hedgehog Street website address www.hedgehogstreet.org. And last but not least, why not take a look on the British Hedgehog Preservation Society's website, which is www.bhps.org. And that has been our little journey around the world of the hedgehog on this week's Wildlife Matters Investigates. to relax and just enjoy a little bit of nature's sounds and take a evening stroll with me through one of my local areas and just listen to the evening bird song and see which species you can pick out from this recording. really not much that can compare with a stroll on a beautiful spring evening just listening to the sounds of nature and in particular a bird song and in this recording i hope you were able to pick out the blackbird the song thrush a nightingale garden warbler greenfinch and last but not least the swallow how many of those did you get It would be fascinating to know Why not drop us a line at uh, info at wildlife-matters.org and give us some suggestions of what nature sounds you would like to hear. But for now, that has been this week's Wildlife Matters Mindful Moments. And on this week's Wildlife Matters podcast, we're going to be continuing our series of looking at some of the issues that are impacting on wildlife here in the UK, in particular, the badger culls. And today, what we're going to be looking at is the randomized badger culling trials, or the RBCT, as it is commonly known, and why is it so important still today? Well, if you've looked into the UK badger culls, the chances are you've already encountered the randomised badger cull trial, or more commonly known as the RBCT. But, what exactly is it, and why should anybody care about it? Well, let me try to explain. So, the randomised badger culling trial was conducted over nearly 10 years between 1998 and 2007 and it cost taxpayers approximately £50 million, pounds. so there's very good reasons to be care about it still. The goal of the RVCT was to quantify the effects of badger culling on bovine tuberculosis in cattle herds and to determine how such strategies could reduce the chance of a herd breakdown due to bovine TB. The trial was monitored by a group that was known as the Independent Scientific Group, or ISG. It all started with the Krebs review on bovine TB in cattle and badgers back in 1997. This review stated that there was compelling evidence that badgers played a role in transmitting the disease to cattle but the data available made it difficult to develop a control policy based on badger culling. To address these concerns, the review recommended conducting a large-scale field trial to determine the effectiveness of badger culling in reducing the the incidence of TB in cattle and minimising risk. The RBCT trial is widely regarded as the most comprehensive and evident evaluation of the effectiveness of culling badgers to reduce bovine TB in cattle herds. It has been fully published and has undergone peer review. However, some have raised doubts about its validity due to operations being suspended for a year during the foot and mouth disease outbreak in 2001. So how did the field trials work? Well, the RBCT was set up in a similar format to those of a medical trial today. 30 areas were grouped into 10 sets of three and each was called a triplet. In July 1998, the government's randomized badger culling trial commenced. 30 areas were grouped into 10 sets of three, each called a triplet. Each set comprised three large sites known as subpopulations and these were then further divided into smaller sample areas called sets. Many of these were located on private farmland. The first triplet used proactive culling, which meant that the badgers were culled on a single occasion locally on and near farmland where recent outbreaks of bovine tuberculosis had occurred in cattle. It is difficult to calculate how many badgers lived through this particular part of rural England before the start of the RBCT, but estimates suggest there may have been several hundred living within its boundaries at the start of the study. The second triplet used reactive culling. In these areas, the badgers were culled on a repeated, approximately annual basis across all accessible land with the farmer's consent and the third triplet area, there was no coal and no controls were put in place. The next part was the zones, so when looking at maps of England you will see it is divided up into numbered zones for postal deliveries, weather forecasting etc. These 30 districts are also used in scientific research on specific locations within England. For researchers to establish whether or not culling badgers had an effect on bovine TB incidence in cattle, they were required to group adjacent samples and ensure they had 20, 40, 60 or 80% culling within each subpopulation by randomly selecting suitable landholding ownerships from landowners who elected to participate, i.e. farmer-led sampling. The scientist's plan was set in motion to cull the badger population across 10 areas, each being 100km square. In the proactive culling areas, the badgers would be hunted down and killed over the entire area of each of these 10 spots. In the reactive culling areas, badgers were only culled on farms where infected cattle herds had already been discovered. The operation aimed to remove every badger family that could have accessed the breakdown farm. And in the control zones surveys were conducted for badgers without any culling taking place during the trial period. The British government was forced to put on hold reactive culling when it de- was determined that TB and cattle had become more severe than in the comparison sites analysis of proactive culling revealed both positive and negative consequences. You see farms situated in the center of the cold area saw a relative drop of 25% concerning TB incidents, but farms on the outskirts saw an increase of over 25% as compared to the control areas so clearly something was not working. The scientists believe that the harmful effects caused by both reactive and proactive culling were due to disruption in the badger population and this led to an increased spread of tuberculosis. They went on to describe this phenomenon as perturbation, a consequence of culling badgers not previously known but discovered by the RBCT trials. So let me try and explain a little about what in fact a perturbation effect is. So in the context of badgers, perturbation refers to any changes in their behavior that result in their population being culled. The randomized badger culling trial is where most of the evidence for perturbation in badgers has come from. The experiment was set up to check if culling badgers could decrease bovine TB cases in cattle The RBCT found that whilst instances of TB in cattle saw a decline inside proactive badger cull areas, they increased in neighboring 2km zones. This perturbation effect is thought to be because fewer badgers are left behind in the area, causing them to roam over wider areas and potentially increase contact with cows, hence increasing chances of transmitting any disease although this had not been proven as yet. So, perturbation of badgers is believed to lead to an increase in TB outbreaks among cattle in surrounding locations to where the proactive culling was taking place. To cut through the rest of the report and just come to the conclusion, let's have a look at uh, what was said. So, taking account of the cost of culling as well as the compelling results of the trial, the independent scientific group concluded at the end of the trial that, after taking into account the high cost of culling and evaluating the trial results, the independent scientific group concluded that badger culling is not an effective way to control bovine TB in Britain. Instead. They recommended focusing on improving cattle detection and removal of disease to reduce transmission between both animals. Additionally, improvements to farm biosecurity measures can also reduce risk while continuing to research vaccine development for both species. Despite acknowledging a decrease in negative edge effects and continuing positive effects After halting proactive culling trials, the ISG maintained their recommendation against badger culling. Before the 2010 general election, David Cameron's Conservative Party made a manifesto pledge designed to appeal to large landowners and farmers that included the return of fox hunting and the culling of badgers under licence. Following the 2010 general election, David Cameron's Conservatives formed a coalition government and began to implement their manifesto pledges. But the Lib Dem coalition leader Nick Clegg was vehemently opposed to making fox hunting legal again. So with one of their pledges forced onto the back burner, they had to make good on the other and they announced the culling of badgers would begin in two pilot areas of Gloucestershire and Somerset in 2012. The badger coals instituted by DEFRA in 2013 have been highly suspect since their inception. Dismissing scientific evidence provided by the RBCT, DEFRA chose to cherry pick which methods they would utilise disregarding those that didn't suit the government's agenda. The 2013 pilot coals saw a jarring contrast between the RBCT's use of two-week intensive coals and DEFRA's six-week mandate. Consequently, the pilot coal areas were much smaller than those studied by the RBCT and yielded incomparable results. Now, after 12 years of culling and despite the government's stated aim of ending the badger coals in 2025, Wildlife Matters is deeply concerned that should the license be issued in 2025, those coal zones would be subjected to a further nine years of intensive killing. Four years of concentrated culling followed by five years of supplementary culling of badgers could extend that for another decade. After ten years of badger culling the badger population has been reduced by in excess of two hundred and seventy. 1,000 individuals and that's around 50% of the UK's entire badger population and remember the licensed coal zones do not cover the whole of England so clearly badger populations in the southwest and west of the UK must be at extreme risk of local extinctions. Wildlife Matters frustration grows with each passing day As I observed, DEFRA and Natural England withhold critical data from the public, leaving us to wonder if the coals are making any difference at all. The 20-month reporting delay is completely unacceptable and it's time that we demand transparency. There must be a 12-month maximum to make all data available to the public. The RBCT was the first scientific trial paper I had ever read. I found that it provided me with clear and comprehensive insights into the field trial methods used. It soon became clear to me that this is an exceptionally robust and logical model for any scientific study. So much so that after many years of reading scientific papers, I have yet to find one that matches its clarity and conciseness. It is deeply disturbing then to think that the Cameron government could be so quick as to ignore the findings of such a widely respected study. A study paid for by UK taxpayers at the hefty cost of £50 million. Tragically though, this is exactly what they did. And worse still, successive Conservative governments have continued with their flawed policy to the detriment of badgers but also to cattle and farmers all of whom have suffered from the fatally flawed policy when it is clear that the disease bovine tb lies within cattle herds and more specifically intensively farmed dairy herds we have seen the incredible ability of scientists to produce vaccines in record time in recent years And yet, the British government has taken over a decade to develop a cattle vaccine, even though one already exists. Yeah, that's right, the BCG that many people had at school until recent years and still claim that the development of cattle vaccine is several years away. As we've prepared to explore the multifaceted issue of bovine tuberculosis in future podcasts, It's crucial to consider the conundrum of cattle, badgers, and their related diseases. The independent scientific group has never wavered from its stance that culling is not the answer. In addition, Lord Krebs, who created the randomised badger culling trial, has stated in the House of Lords on many occasions that the government estimates suggesting a 16% decrease in herd breakdowns over just 9 years were insufficiently effective way of controlling the disease. Over 10 years on and Lord Krebs has been proven right, yet still the British government refuses to acknowledge the science and continues to kill badgers across the United Kingdom. You have to ask yourself why our government are so determined to continue culling badgers despite the science. Despite their poor performance and outcomes of the colds that they've devised and a huge amount of opposition from the British public. So why are the British government protecting an industry that is clearly in terminal decline and whose products are the food of another animal's babies? How can the British dairy industry be so worth protecting over the lives of native badgers And that has been this week's Wildlife Matters main feature. We'll be back soon with a look into bovine TB and continue this series. Helped you understand why the randomised badger culling trial, or the RBCT, is still such an important piece of scientific research. So, what have we got coming up on the next Wildlife Matters podcast? Well, I'm excited to be saying Wildlife Matters investigates is going to be looking into the dolphins that are stolen from the wild, prey life in captivity, and on our main feature, we're going to be asking the question. So what is fox hunting yeah we're going to try and explain that the what fox hunting is i mean it's disgusting but you know the realities of it how it's come about and uh, where it stands within the law just for those of you who maybe don't fully understand all the ins and outs of it and um, why it really it is such a cruel and barbaric thing In nature news, of course, we will be bringing you all the latest up-to-date news from the UK nature scene and we'll be spending a few moments in nature with mindful moments. But before I go, I just want to say a huge thank you to our new donors, subscribers and to our new Patreons. Look guys, thank you so much for your support. It means so much to us. And if you do like the show and you do like what we're trying to do here by building a community of wildlife and nature lovers around the wildlife matters podcast then please do consider supporting us you can find out how to do that on our website there are various ways you can do it for as little or as much as you might like to give our website address is www.wildlife-matters.org that is www.wildlife-matters.org thanks once again to all of you who are supporting us in whatever way you can i love you all thank you that has been this week's wildlife matters podcast with me your host nigel palmer wildlife matters signing out